No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, the authors of a new book for young adults discuss the lessons that sports can teach young people. It's a way to teach young kids about what was happening and you know, the global conflict that was going on prior to World War II. It was a way to teach about anti-Semitism and Jim Crow, but while still entertaining kids, you know, with this really, really dramatic story of these two boxing rivals. And... Paul Goldberger explains why baseball stadiums are so different from the venues in other sports. Ballparks really are imbued with the character of the place that they're in. And in fact, they traditionally have all been different. You know, when you're in a basketball court, you sort of want it to feel more or less like every other basketball court, but not a baseball field. They're all different. They all speak to their cities, or they should. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with the authors John Florio and Weezy Shapiro. Their new book is about the two epic fights that took place between Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis in 1936 and 1938. We'll be speaking about those fights and their ramifications. But first, we welcome to the show one of our old friends, the ESPN senior writer and columnist, our tennis maven, Howard Bryant. Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My favorite time of year. This is right in your tennis wheelhouse, of course, this time of year. And at the French Open, we had both... The expected, Rafael Nadal winning his 12th title just in Paris, which is obviously insane, unfathomable. It's kind of phenomenal. And and Ashley Barty, Ash Barty, the Australian who took off two years from tennis to become, I guess, a professional cricketer, although she had no experience in that sport, has returned, obviously, to the tennis fold, has been rising steadily through the ranks the last couple of years. She wins on the women's side. Um what did you make of Barty's victory? Well, I loved it, actually, because I think that this is one of the interesting things when it, it's almost sometimes you, you, you look at these conversations and I, I try really hard not to fall into narrative. Just watch the matches and see what's happening. There's nothing better than tennis in that regard as well, because the because the rankings are so dynamic. And so you had all this period where it was like, oh, well, you know, Serena's winning all the time. There's nothing She's got no competition, but if you watch the women's game, there are plenty of different players out there. And I think it's really great too when you come off the you come off the hard court surface at after the Aussie Open and after the two American Masters one thousand, and then you get to clay, and all of a sudden on the clay on the clay court you start seeing different players emerge. Ash Barty has been rising for a while now, and you were wondering when she was gonna sort of cro- you know, cross over because she's been playing so well. And that title was there for the taking, and she got it. And Nadal on the men's side, as we said, you know, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, there was Roy Emerson who had 12 total Grand Slam singles titles. That was the most for the men. It seemed unapproachable for a long time. Six of his titles coming in Australia, and that seemed ridiculous. And now we've got Nadal who's up to, what is it, 16 total? 18. 18 total, I'm sorry. Uh, Roger's got 20, right? And yeah. Djokovic has got, what, 15? Djokovic's got 15. I mean, has, 
has Rafael Nadal ruined the French Open, or has he given us more reason to appreciate it? No, he makes it better. You think so? More reason to appreciate him. He makes it better. And here's the reason why, Jeremy. Because once again, we talk about these things in narrative, and it does feel inevitable. And it's certainly by the time Rafa got done with Dominic Team, you were, you were thinking, oh my goodness, he just runs through. But he really didn't. He, he, he was destroyed in the Australian Open by Novak Djokovic. And I don't mean that to be hyperbolic. He got beaten straight sets, and it was his worst loss at a major, at a major final ever. And you're looking at this, and so you've got Djokovic who has an opportunity to hold all four majors again for the second time in his career. He's already proven that he could crush Nadal, which he did. He goes into the clay court season, you know, Rafa does, not playing particularly well because he had to withdraw at Indian Wells against, against Roger. So he's, his health isn't great. His greatest rival, Djokovic, had taken care of him. Then he goes to the surfaces where he dominates. And Fabio Fanini takes him out at Monte Carlo. And he loses to team and loses to Tsitsipas. And in Madrid and Barcelona, so he's going into he's going into Rome without a title for the twenty eighteen for twenty nineteen. So it's not like this was a this was a giving. He finally starts to find himself a little bit. He goes out. He beats Djokovic in the final in Rome. So now you're starting to think, okay, maybe Rafa is there. And then he turns it on. And that's it, it wasn't a given that he was going to come into the clay court season or come into Roland Garros and just dominate everybody. You could have made an argument that, that both Djokovic and team were playing better than Rafa in that tournament. But once that tournament starts, all of a sudden he turns that light switch on. We're speaking with Howard Bryant, the columnist and senior writer for ESPN, the magazine, who's been covering tennis for so long and so well. And, and I see what you're saying about Nadal, but, you know, the fact is he's won 12 of these things, which is ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. And that is true. And, and and it's a little bit to me like the way that, you know, Bob Beeman kind of ruined the long jump for a long time when he broke the record by 22 inches in 1968. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit like Sergey Bupka, the pole vault. It's just like when the, when somebody pulls away so far ahead of the rest of the crowd, uh, the Peloton, however you want to put it, um, it, it, it does it somehow, diminish the event or is that uh, a silly way of looking at it? Well, I don't think it's silly, but I, I don't want to use words like lazy and I don't want to, I don't want to talk like that, Jeremy, but what it does sound to me is that we, we've become a bit jaded. I think we, we still do. We still enjoy the journey of the games. I mean, for example, this is the exact same argument switching gears for a second. This is the exact same argument we were hearing with the warriors. Oh, they ruined the game. The Warriors are three and two in finals. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they got beat straight up because obviously they had injuries, but this is the reason why you watch the games. This is the reason why you play the games. You know, the, Roy the Warriors won championships when their opponents were injured. They won in 2015 when Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love were both hurt. They win in six games. And then, of course, you've got the 2016 final, which was amazing because Draymond gets suspended and you had to go through all of those things. And so, to me, I still watch the game. I still find a lot of joy in, in that journey and how these championships are won and how they're lost. And if you're only going to focus on the end result, sure, it looks boring because the end result can be predictable. However, 
I remember a time, and you remember this as well, when people were talking about first the Patriots had a dynasty, and then they didn't win for a few years only because they didn't win the championship. Then the dynasty was supposedly dead. Ten years. Ten years. Exactly. Ten years. But in those ten years, they went to what? Six AFC title games, and they went to one Super Bowl, and I'm sure they went to two Super Bowls and lost them both. They lost to the Giants. So it's not, it's not like they weren't a great team. We fall into this idea that – if the end result is what we expected, or if the end result doesn't produce, then we can create the label. And I'm still saying, I like watching the game and seeing, what's ha- seeing what happens. And if you watch that NBA final, there was nothing boring about it. I wanted to see, could the Toronto Raptors actually close? And they did. And believe me, when you saw that game six after blowing game five at home in an elimination game, it wasn't a guarantee that they were going to – I don't know what happens if that thing goes seven. I found it – I still found it to be a really compelling journey. Well, you're, you're a true fan. You're, better, you're a better man than I am. But, <laughs> well, I'm, um, not Bob, I'm not Bob Ryan. I'm not Bob Ryan, you know, but, I'm, but I still <laughs> love watching the game. Who among us is? Now, he, go, he goes to everything. For those of who are listening who don't know, Howard knows this. I know this. But, but Bob Ryan will drive six hours round trip to go to a high school basketball game if it piques his interest. <laughs> he, he will not – he'll see – he'll watch basketball till uh, the cows come home. Um, but, you know, for me with, with men's tennis now, it's part of – it's kind of uh, a microcosm of the larger issue. And I was fascinated um, – I mean, you probably were aware of this, but Chris Clary from the New York Times, the great tennis writer there, you know, tweeted before the French Open that there is only one man in the world, I believe it is under the age of 28, who is so much as appeared in a Grand Slam singles final. And it was Dominic Team. And there's still only one man who's appeared under, I mean, it's insane how the old guys have been dominating when he pointed out at the same time, I believe Borg uh, with his 11 and McEnroe, right, with his eight, had won all of their Grand Slam singles titles by the age of 25, both of them. And they were both retired by 26. And let's also not forget that. We're talking about three, arguably the three greatest players ever. You can certainly make a case for that. Um, but it's just been going on for so long. What, when do you see, I mean, when when is this going to end? When somebody's big enough and bad enough to beat them, and I don't begrudge those players at all. I mean, you, you know, you gotta, if you wanna be the best, you gotta beat the best, right? This is, I don't understand this whole notion that, that somehow the sports are being, we watch the games, Jeremy, for dominance. I wanna see the best. Do you, do you wanna see two teams go eight and eight and play for a championship? You wanna see two mediocre teams knock the ball around? I don't want to see that. No, no, I, I love seeing the grape. I'm just saying I feel like a little turnover is good. You know, a little fresh blood is good. Give me a champion. That's what I, I, I wish there was. I, I There isn't one. Exactly. Hey, remember 2009, right? Juan Martin Del Potro mm-hmm. shows up at the U.S. Open, crushes Nadal in the semifinal, and beats Federer to win a championship. That's how you do it. Look at Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic 2011. Comes in, he beats Federer and beats Nadal, wins a championship. This is what you're supposed to do. And, and I think that, and once again, I, and I really don't want to sort of belabor this, but I do wonder, do we watch, why are we watching these things if we don't want to see the best of the best of the best? I know that for me, when this era is over, 
I'm going to be real sad about it because these are the best tennis players I've ever seen. If you like the sport and if you love how the game is played and if you respect the excellence, how can you not want to watch Serena and how can you not want to watch Djokovic and Federer and Nadal and to see them all at the same time? This reminds me of what the old timers used to say when I was a kid. Oh, well, you should have seen the amazed mantle and the Duke. You know, you should have seen those teams play together. You should have seen Wilt and, and, and Russell. I'm here for dynasties. I'm not here for sort of, you know, I don't, I don't want to see some eight seed play a six seed in the Stanley Cup like the Devils and the Kings did one year. I want to see the best of the best play. Howard, before we let you go, who's going to win Wimbledon? Hey, 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 hey you're going to tell me, right? You're going to tell me it's going to be Serena and Roger. Ooh, guys, you know, we used to we used to say when we were on the old on sports reporters. Um, don't ask me those questions. I don't know who's going to win, but obviously you've got Rogers got eight of them. Djokovic is the defending champion. Uh, you know, it's a it, you know when you get to grass, the big servers show up. So you've had Raonic reach, reach a final. You've had Chilich reach a final. You had Kevin Anderson reach a final last year. So you know that you're going to some six foot eight guy out there is going to be blasting aces on the on the grass. So never underestimate that. I. I have no feel for this, so I'm going to go with the defending champion. I'm just going to say, after Djokovic lost to Dominic Team, I'm going to say Novak is a favorite. <laughs> and, and here we go again with the big three controlling everything. Howard Bryant, it's always a pleasure, sir. It's been too long. Thank you for coming back on The Sporting Life. Call again anytime. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In 1936, when they first fought, Max Schmeling upset Joe Lewis, who's one of the great upsets in the annals of sport. That fight and their rematch two years later were two of the biggest events, period, in the history of sport, but they were about much more than sports. And those two fights are the subject of a new book by the guests who join us now. The book is War in the Ring. Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling, and the fight between American Hitler and the authors are our old friends, John Florio and Wheezy Shapiro, who previously written together One Nation Under Baseball, how the 1960s collided with the national pastime. They also wrote together One Punch from the Promised Land, Leon Spinks, Michael Spinks, and the myth of the heavyweight title. They are also related to each other by marriage, and by that I mean marriage to each other. John, Weezy, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and we're still speaking to each other. <laughs> Red Sox fan and Yankee fan, and we're still going strong. Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to good to be here. Thank you, John. To be clear, John's the Yankees fan. Weezy is the uh, the Bostonian. Um, so this this is a young adult book. Weezy, let's start with you. Um, why, why did you think this material, which is you know, about racism and anti-Semitism in a world on the brink of uh, global war, World War II. Why, why is this something that would suit a young adult audience? Well, I think that, you know, any kids that are interested in sports at all and any kids that are interested in what's going on in the world, that this was a great uh, intersection between the two. And it's a way to teach young kids about what was happening, you know, the, of the global conflict that was going on prior to World War II. It was a way to teach about anti-Semitism and Jim Crow, but while still entertaining kids with this, you know, with this really, really dramatic story of these two, you know, boxing rivals. John, how do you have to adjust your style? I mean, you guys are uh, adult writers. Uh, is that the right way to put it? Not adult. You, you know, <laughs> 
Rick, Rick, not adult material. That's not what I meant. <laughs> we are adults and writers, if that's, that's what you mean. That's no, what I meant. You know, it's an interesting, I, I know the, the question is going to be, how do you change it for the young adult audience? And it was one of our first questions going into the project. And we sat down with Simon Bowton, who was the editor at uh, Macmillan, who wanted this title from us. And we talked about that very thing and said, you know, what is the main difference? And really, it's what not to include, because what happens when writing for the adult market is that you uh, tend to, let's say, when talking about Hitler or backstory, you'll go into it much more deeply. Whereas in this case, we'll summarize some of that material to, to provide the setting and then get back to our main story. So the subtext don't... Uh, we, we don't go as deep into the subtext. We really stick more to the main story, but we give enough uh, to flesh out uh, what's going on. But as I, I will say one thing. Simon Bowden did point out that when you are writing for middle school, he said, don't talk down, don't write down to these kids, you know, that they can handle the material. So just write as you would to an adult audience, and an adult reader. And I think that was really valuable for us. I think it's appropriate we're talking about young adult nonfiction uh, as the summer begins, as kids get their reading lists or assignments to read some books on their own over the summer. And, and the story of Schmeling and Lewis is such a rich one, and there there is so much there. But first of all, um, John, when you talk about Max Schmeling in 1936, when he's fighting Joe Lewis, you're talking about a guy many people considered washed up at that point, a former heavyweight champion, wasn't considered to have, uh, he was considered to have only a past in the ring. Lewis was the bright, shining star of the heavyweight division and of all of sports. When they stepped into the ring for the first time against each other, where did each of them stand in the public consciousness? Well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, you, you do, you have Schmeling, who they didn't really give a chance against Lewis, and he did so well against Lewis. And to give an idea of where the country was at that point in 36, this, you know, two, a lot happens in two years by the time the fight in 38, the rematch comes in 38. But in 36, a lot of the white establishment didn't want Lewis to win that fight. They didn't want a black champion. Um, you know, you're coming off of Jim Crow in um, 1896. You had Plessy Ferguson, so you had separate but equal. But everybody knew Yes, black and white uh, society is separate, but you know the what's being given to them is not equal, and they wanted really to keep it that way. To the point, I did a re uh, reading recently from this book, and I read after the thirty-six fight when Schmeling upsets Lewis um, that Congress stops uh, stops doing uh, business, stop, and actually senators from the South, where Lewis was from were celebrating the fact that Schmeling had beaten him because they didn't want Lewis to go any farther than he had already gone. So that's where things were in 1936. You have a white establishment that really is rooting openly against the American fighter because he's black. And one of the striking things about that shocking loss for Joe Lewis at the time, what was he, 21, 22, when he lost the first fight to Schmeling, um, was on the other side of the coin, the reaction in black America heartbroken i remember reading accounts uh, of reactions i mean here here was the first uh black man who seemed to have a chance in the near term after that fight to have a shot at the heavyweight championship which no african-american had held since jack johnson lost to jess willard in that controversial fight in havana in 1915 how much did it mean to black america when joe lewis lost that first fight wheezy 
Oh, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And, you know, communities across the country, um, in black communities across the country, people were just heartbroken. And uh, it was such a crushing defeat because it was a chance for a black person to to rise up and to show what they were capable of doing. And, and then the other thing is that it was, it was a shocking defeat. Nobody expected this. Nobody expected this to happen. And Hitler was rejoicing. Yeah. I mean, he had Schmeling. Uh, he, he was entertaining Schmeling and talking with him about the fight, celebrating him as, you know, the Aryan ideal. So Hitler really uh, loved the outcome of that fight. But, of course, before the fight, uh, the German uh, regime, the Nazi regime, in fact, uh, mostly distanced itself from Schmeling because they expected him to lose, and not only lose, but lose to an African-American. Correct. Yes. And um, he proved them right. He said before the fight he had seen something in Lewis. He said, you know, I've been around a long time, and he predicted he was going to win that fight. What he had seen was that Lewis was dropping his left hand after throwing a jab. So he kept throwing that. He had a, he had a very good overhand right smelling. And whenever the jab would come, he'd wait, and, the, and Lewis's left hand would come down, and he would keep throwing that overhand right, and he repeatedly connected. But, you know, as, you know, Lewis had two years to adjust after that, and things changed. They they called uh, Schmeling, correct me if I'm wrong, the Black Ulan, like the Lancer. What was that? Was that his nickname, Wheezy? Yeah, he had a few nicknames. He had oh my. Sorry. Well, he was the the Black Ulan of the Rhine. Of the Rhine, yeah. Was made... from uh, was from Joe Jacob, Jussel the Muscle, his uh, <laughs> uh, Schmeling's uh, promoter, and it was it was really based on nothing, right? I mean, Ulan was a cavalry rider. Yeah. And his black, he had black hair. And, and, he, the, and, Rhine, he, and the Rhine was nowhere near he, <laughs> where he had grown up in Hamburg. So, I mean, it made no the, the, sense whatsoever. But You didn't not. have to be precise if you were in the world of promoting fights. I no, mean, not not how much has changed. Wheezy, how does, how does Lewis eventually get that championship before he even has a rematch with Schmeling? Well, it was a backroom deal. Yeah, it was a backroom deal. And, Jeremy, you wrote a lot about that in, in your book, too. Uh, it was this crazy backroom deal that went... That was that was the whole thing was manufactured between uh, Mike Jacobs, Mike Jacobs, and uh, and Joe Gould, who was Jim Braddock's manager. And it was yeah. really what Jacobs what Jacobs did to get Lewis the title was he gave up ten percent of everything he was going to make on heavyweight championship fights for the next ten years just to get Lewis into the ring. It wasn't even a question of winning; just to get Lewis the opportunity, he gave up ten percent of everything he was going to earn from heavyweight title fights, it so happens that Lewis ended up holding the title for those 10 years. So, you know, Lewis paid 10% of his income for 10 years. I mean, in a snapshot of that deal, which is a little funky, but in a snapshot, Lewis gave up 10% of his income for 10 years holding the title just to have gotten the chance to fight Braddock. Right, although Mike Jacobs never said, never, never claimed that the 10% was coming from Lewis's uh, purse, but it, it, it's all, it was a little unclear and a little shady where that 10% was, you know, eventually came from. Joe Lewis wins the title from Jim Braddock in 1937. He becomes the first African-American world heavyweight champion. There were African-American champions in other divisions uh, between that time and 1937, but the first since 1915 when Jack Johnson lost the title to Jess Willard in Havana. The second fight, it's... So highly anticipated, the second Schmeling-Lewis fight, there, there is so much propaganda uh, on the German side. Can you give us a sense of what the significance of that fight was for Nazi Germany, which at the time had been in power for five years, Wheezy? 
It was monumental. I mean, it was, you know, Hitler was, he was holding up uh, Schmeling as the exemplar of Aryan supremacy. And the fact that Schmeling had won in 36, it convinced Hitler that he was going to win again. And it was, I mean, the whole country was just on the edge of their seats. People were up in the middle of the night waiting for the fight to happen. It was at Yankee Stadium again. And, um, I mean, it seemed like the entire country was just, you know, hanging on this fight, and Hitler just couldn't wait to prove Aryan supremacy. And, you know, don't forget, one one point to add to that is Lewis is going into that fight. He's only got one loss on his record to Schmeling. Otherwise, he's undefeated. So if you're rooting for Schmeling at that point, you're thinking to yourself, hey, he's, uh, Lewis looks unbeatable, but, you know, he's got a shot. But Schmeling's got a shot. He did beat him before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really made for, even in boxing terms, forgetting all of the other incredible um, uh, ramifications of the fight. It, just as, a, as a, bo- a pure boxing fan at that time, it was an interesting fight because you have a guy who looks unbeatable, but he did lose once to this guy, and here comes that guy again. So you never know what could happen. You and know. the question going in was, was it a fluke that Lewis had lost or um, that Schmeling had won? It, and it's one of those things, too. Um, you know, Joe Lewis eventually reigns as heavyweight champion for a decade. Um, he's widely considered, if not the greatest prize fighter of all time. He's among the top three or four. Um, but losing that fight early in his career, before he was champion, a devastating loss for him, uh, for so many millions of African-Americans, for so many millions of Americans who aren't African-American, uh, who are devastated by it. Um how did that loss how did that loss affect the rest of his career you know because having that loss he might have he might have learned some lessons that he was able to apply later oh i think definitely i think i mean he said as much really he he said that you know he was so young i was 21 or 22 when he lost that first fight and um I think he said himself that he learned a lot, and it was probably and his manager, um, Chappie Blackburn, said it's good that he, his trainer. I'm sorry, Chappie Blackburn said it was good that he lost because uh, you know it was a lesson for him. He also never said he felt like he was champion until he got to beat Schmeling in that second fight. You know, he he said, you know, as long as that loss is on my record, I don't feel like I'm really a champion. He he needed to avenge that loss before he was able to move on. And, and one of the great things about Joe Lewis, I mean, you know, th- this book also serves as a biography in a sense of, of Joe Lewis, one of the great figures in the history of sports in the U.S., beyond, in boxing and beyond. And, and he was such an important figure. Um you know, we think of him along with Jesse Owens as a trailblazer, as, as among the first African American sports heroes who were embraced, uh, by, by white America. Not by all of white America, as you said, but by many people in white America and eventually probably by most of white America. And he approached his celebrity, he approached his championship very different than, differently than his predecessor, uh, Jack Johnson. Um, so, so, w- what is there um, in the life of Joe Lewis to be learned that's particularly important for young adults, Weezy? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say different from his um, predecessor. He was also very different from his successor, you know, Muhammad Ali, who um, had a very different take on the way that, um, well, that he himself, but that also that black America should 
should respond to what was going on in the country. And at the time of Ali, it was the Vietnam War. And he, he felt early on, and he said it publicly, that he thought Joe Lewis was, um, was an Uncle Tom. And then he, he regretted that he had said that. But I think, you know, for kids today, it's really valuable to see the context in which, the, in which Joe Lewis was, was born and raised and, you know, all of the challenges, challenges especially, you know, he, was, he grew up in Jim Crow America, so all of the challenges that he had to face. And I think, you know, you have to appreciate that context in order to understand the individual. It's a terrific new book for young adults, War in the Ring, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling, and the fight between America and Hitler about those two epic fights that took place in 1936 and 1938, and also about Joe Lewis, the great champion who emerged from them. Uh, it's a pleasure, John and Wheezy. It's good to see that uh, you're still speaking, uh, <laughs> even though you're married and working together. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Thanks very much for having us, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Anyone who's ever been to a baseball game knows just how much the setting matters the splendid green of the field itself, and also the building which surrounds the field and the stands. Paul Goldberger is a Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic. His new book, just published this week, is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. It's a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life, Paul Goldberger. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be here. You know, when we talk about um, baseball and its role in American society, the national pastime, we can certainly throw around a lot of cliches going back to uh, anyone who wants to know the heart and soul of America had better learn baseball. What does a ballpark tell us about the place in which it is situated? Well, ballparks, unlike almost any other sporting venue, football stadiums, basketball arenas, hockey rinks, anything like that, ballparks really do, uh, really are imbued with the character of the place that they're in. Um, and in fact, they traditionally have all been different. You know, when, when you're in a basketball court, you sort of want it to feel more or less like every other basketball court, but not a baseball field. They're all different. They all speak to their cities, or they should, at least. And the thing that was so fascinating to me was discovering that the history of ballparks more or less tracks the whole history of American cities and urban places. And it's all there. Everything from uh, the way we used to be very oriented in tight, dense urban neighborhoods to the way we moved to suburban sprawl to the way and since the 1990s, people have been trying to reconnect to the city again. I grew up in New York, uh, you know, both sides of my family from Flatbush. Ebbets Field holds that place in the lore of the city and the country, the way that certainly the polo grounds did in its way in upper Manhattan and so forth. When you talk about a, a ballpark and we call them ballparks, not stadiums initially. Definitely, definitely. And we still, we still should, except for the few that don't deserve to be called ballparks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I grew up going to Shea Stadium, which right. was one of those places exactly. that did not exactly. deserve. Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but how how does a ballpark uh, and the way it's built uh, reflect life in the particular place uh, w- where it is? Well, 
you know, the, the, the early ones and those few survivors we have from that period were kind of densely woven into the urban fabric. They were parts of a neighborhood. You could walk to them and from them, and they felt connected to everything. They were not concrete donuts sitting in a sea of asphalt parked cars. <laughs> and, and so, you know, in, in, now, of course, you could say that for a lot of American history in the 20th century, uh, acres, acres and acres of parked cars reflect the America we were, too. Certainly. And, you know, but that's, that's, that's not, a, not, not as pleasant a vision of America as, as a nice, you know, old-fashioned city neighborhood, I think. Yeah, the suburbanization of America and, and white flight from the inner cities, all these things. Which was key to the Dodgers' decision to leave Brooklyn, really. Um, and, uh, uh, the fact that so much, so much of their fan base had left uh, the neighborhood had left the city, was not traveling either by foot or by subway to the ballpark, which had been the original intention. Uh, and, you know, Walter O'Malley in the 50s was frustrated by the fact that uh, he thought Ebbets was dirty, tired, worn out, uh, a sort of mess, no way to improve it, small, uh, and no way to improve it, expand it, or even add parking which is what he'd wanted to do. I mean, he, he, he wanted to sort of serve a suburban audience. He thought that that was the future. And, you know, that was back when in the 50s, nobody had yet begun to think that there might be a dark side to the automobile. It was cool. It was fun. It was liberating. You know, we were going to make more freeways and more backyards for everybody, and it was all going to be great. Uh, it turned out to be a little more complicated than that, but nobody really knew that in the 50s. So, so there's a connection, of course, too, as you're saying, between, you know, the way Americans started to live in, in the post-war era, in the Robert Moses-ification of, of our cities and our suburbs, and it, the ballpark flows from that. The ballpark pretty much shows us how we wanted to live at every phase of American history since baseball began. That's the really interesting thing. I mean, it, 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 it tells us so much about everything else beyond the sport itself, which of course is, is key. But, you know, the, the, the casualness of it, the way it was part of an urban neighborhood you walked to, then it got more and more grandiose, pretty much at the time that America was becoming more of a world power. In the early 20th century, we started building grander ballparks like Scheib Park in Philadelphia, which became um, Connie Mack Stadium before it was torn down, uh, and of course, Ebbets Field, and so many of the other early ones, which really were kind of grand civic buildings at just the time that the country was sort of flexing its muscles. And, you know, at each phase, even up to the present time, it shows us really what we are, what we want out of public space. And the ballpark is really one of the great American public spaces. You know, I, I, I think we, we need to think of it that way and not just as an athletic venue. Paul Goldberger's new book is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. So if our ballparks are a representation of what we want in our society and where we're heading, if they're a microcosm of our cultural moments um, frozen in time, what, what did the construction of the Astrodome represent? Ah, okay. That's a great question. Um, what the construction of the Astrodome represented was a couple of things. First, just Texas, you know, grandiosity and belief that it could be bigger and grander than any place else. It also represented um, the, the move of baseball, of course, into climate, 
where once um, professional baseball hadn't been played. So it was too hot. You know, it was too hot. hot. Exactly. Who wants to sit, you know, in the Texas sun or the Florida sun for three hours, day after day after day? So um, the, 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 the and it represented this belief that was very much part of America in the 1960s that big American technology could overcome any problem at all. Just, you know, throw more money at it, air condition it, make a bigger and bigger room and throw it, fill it with air conditioners and you've got this great place. Well, it was kind of cool and wonderful and exciting, but it also was terrible for baseball, <laughs> which is in its, in, its, in, its, in its DNA is really an outdoor game not that, that should be played in connection with nature, not in an indoor room, no matter how big the room is. Um, and of course, we also know that like so many of these things, this idea that uh, bigger is better, in fact, was not so true some of the time in history. But, you know, it's also true that the ballpark has shown some of the less good sides of us as well as many of the good sides. I mean, even the ballparks that we look back at and love, um, many of the early ones um, were segregated, not just racially, but also economically. You know, in a lot of the early ballparks, the bleachers were had a separate entrance, separate bathrooms, and fences that made it impossible for people in the cheap seats to actually even walk into another part of the ballpark. So the 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 myth of egalitarianism is exactly that a myth in ballparks. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. In fact, yes, they, and in fact, there were even a couple of early ballparks that had things you could call precursors of the skyboxes of today, too. Um, I think, once again, you know, it was showing what we really were in both our good and bad sides. Paul Goldberger's new book is Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. It's a fascinating look at at baseball uh, stadiums, ballparks, however we want to describe them, and their role uh, in 20th century American beyond. Paul, before we let you go, um, it's been a a pleasure having you on the show to discuss this, you know, as an architecture critic, as someone who has not spent most of his career writing about ballparks or arenas. Um, how do you feel about the fact that I think it's fair to say more people feel these visceral connections to their Camden Yards or their City Field or their Pac Bell or their course than they do to the big civic institutions, the museums and the libraries and the university campuses that are that are part of the landscape of their cities as well. Sure. Well, uh, if if more people feel a connection to baseball, you know, so be it. I mean, we, we certainly don't have any shortage of people also these days feeling a connection to a great museum or, you know, some other civic building. I think I think today people are pretty tuned into those things. And, and God knows, you know, the Metropolitan Museum in New York seems to be, you know, more crowded than City Field these days. So so I'm not I'm not sure I would. That could be a reflection of some other factors. Paul, right. But. Well, that's, that's true. And, and one, one really important thing to say is that wonderful as architecture is in making an emotional connection to a place and making you feel good when you're in it. Uh, I'm not going to pretend it can affect the outcome on the field. I mean, Baltimore, right? Baltimore this year is a pretty good proof of that, I think, right? Well, the configurations can make a difference, though. That's yes, for sure. That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, right, totally. And, uh, but they can't alone, you know, 
guarantee a winning team. And so, uh, you know, th- there we are. And it just continues to evolve. It's really been a pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life. Thank you. Great pleasure to talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Tune in again next weekend. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.